we are talking through issues that are very, very dense right now with this book of Romans. And I, I, was, I was saying to a few people, the next series needs to be like a, through the Gospels or something that's more like narrative stories and miracles and things that are kind of easy to talk through and get excited about rather than passages that are so loaded and complicated and hard to figure out. But it's very, very dense and we're trying to take it slow enough that we can do justice to the passage. But at the end of the day, there's going to be things that we miss in this, in this teaching and in this series. Uh, there's going to be ideas that we don't flesh out quite enough and we're going to wish that we had more time for. Sometimes, like today, uh, there's going to be a bigger objective that we're going to try to accomplish and that will come at the expense of not being able to go line by line by line through the passage like we sometimes try to do and we do it when, when possible. But because of that, I do want to remind you that one of our core values is conversation. Uh, we love it when you ask questions. We love it when, we bring, when people bring things to us that they're wrestling with and we can at least attempt to try to sort it out. And we may not have the answer in that moment and we may never come to that answer, but we will do our best to try and figure out uh, to respond in the best way that we, that we can. Uh, uh, so so that's, that, I just wanted to say that before we dive in. But we're going to pick up right where we left off. So last week we read this entire section. It's Romans uh, 5, verse 12 through 21. Uh, but, but then we, we read the whole thing, but then we focused mostly uh, of our time on 12, 13, and 14. Uh, so today we're going to look at verse 15 through 21. So I'll just read out of my Bible for this, and then we will, um, and then we will talk about it. It says this. Again, this is talking about Paul. Um, this is talk, Paul is talking about Jesus and Adam. Um, uh, and it says this, but the free, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, if many died through Adam's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through one man, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. Not just to be declared righteous, but also that you can have life, that you can actually be the person you're supposed to be, that you can actually make an impact on society, that you can actually be a kingdom-minded person today. You can have justification and life. For as by... The one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so if, if you think that's a lot as you're uh, reading it, as I'm reading it, and you're reading on the stage, then maybe perhaps you'll have a little bit of sympathy for me as I've tried to dive into this, because it's an incredible amount of, uh, of content and information. The this, this second paragraph uh, in this section on Adam and Jesus is a contrast between them. So that's the first part that we read today. We read the first paragraph last week. Today we read the second one, which is the contrast between Jesus and Adam. And then the final paragraph is that comparison 
uh, that it feels like we should have gotten in verse 12, like we talked about last week. So this is definitely like a kind of a part two to last week. So he starts it off with what seems like this kind of rant about how Adam is all these things, and you think you're going to get like uh, another side of that, like, oh, but Jesus solved it. But you don't really get that in that first section. You don't really get that fully until verse 18. So that's the, uh, um, that is that comparison you finally, that we've been waiting for. But first, as we're contrasting these two, Paul explains that many died through one man's trespass. So through Adam. But if we think, um, if we think that what Adam did had power in our world, then we should set our eyes on something that's even more powerful. That's what Paul's saying here. And that is the free gift of the grace of God. So if you think that what Adam did uh, matters in our world, imagine how big it is that what Jesus did. Jesus Christ who now brings life. Again, justification and life. Declares you righteous and also says, have the life you're supposed to have, be the person you're supposed to be, change the world. So Adam is the forefather of death. Because of him, death now reigns. But Jesus has come to bring life, and through him, we too, as a body, on a mission, collectively, we can now reign in life. But again, in order to understand the magnitude of what Paul is saying here, and to understand the magnitude of how powerful Jesus is, we first need to understand the magnitude of the problem of sin. So last week, we talked about the garden. And we talked about what Paul said about the garden. And we, we talked briefly about this uh, debate about whether or not Adam was actually a historical person who actually existed. And the conclusion that we came to is that the New Testament writers clearly believed that there was an Adam. There was a first man who caused sin to enter into the world. But with that, we also acknowledged that a person could have existed, like in the genealogies he's listed. So there's acknowledgement that he existed, and it was pretty unanimous that he did. Um, but, but the fact that we believe he existed does not take away from the fact that there's a lot of symbolism in there as well. That is obviously written into this kind of poetic first chapters of the Bible. And that's kind of what we're going to explore a little bit more today. Now once again, this concept is way bigger. Way, way bigger than we can tackle in one sermon. Uh, especially on a sermon that's supposed to be on something that Paul wrote. Uh, but, but in order understanding what Paul's getting at in Romans, there's actually still more that we need to understand about Genesis. Uh, and about Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, and the way that an early Jewish reader would have read and would have understood this passage. Remember, Paul was raised Jewish. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was like the leader of the Pharisees. He was a religious dude. And most of the people, the church that he's writing is a split. It's about half Jewish, half not Jewish. I don't know, the, we don't know the exact number of who, how many it was. But most people who were Jewish would have been reading this and they'd read it through a very similar lens from what Paul would have read it through as well. So in Jewish writing, there are four levels that they read literature through. The modern reader here in the West, in, in America, like, we can't even comprehend this because, um, because for us, everything is either, it's either fiction or it's non-fiction. It's either literal or it's figurative. So it's either Star Wars or it's like Apollo 13, something that's actually a true story, something that really happened that they're telling. It happened or it didn't. But in the ancient world, the meaning always was much more important than the details that were written within it. So as long as the meaning ultimately came across, the details were not as important. So there could be something that's true. It could be completely literal, like a guy that's in a garden. That may be completely literal. 
But there could be details added to make sure that the point is clear that we can now gather. And as long as in the end the hearer understands the message and the point was driven home, then that was still considered a legitimate piece of writing. Uh, Shane did a little bit on this during the Q&A session when he was here. Of course, when we hear that today, we automatically think, well, that's not that's not legitimate. We discredit things because we're trained to read stories through a different lens, a lens of it's this or it's this. It's right or it's wrong. It's true or it's false. So what was normal to them seems absurd to us. But the four levels that they uh, would read it through was a, it was a system called PRDS, which in Hebrew formed the word pardes, which pardes can actually be translated as garden. See, what happened in the garden in Genesis 3 set in motion a world that was, that was not like the world that Adam and Eve had when it was first created, and not like the world that they had in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. But one of the many promises that the Hebrew people clung to and they, they believed is that one day God will redeem them. One day God will take them and they, he will put them back in that original state, that created state that they were created to be in. But for centuries, and Don's talked about this a little bit too, um, it was believed that if Jews could just keep the Torah, if they could just keep the law, if they could work hard enough and they could do what it says, then the Messiah would come because of that. In response to that, the Messiah would come and the Messiah would restore everything. So it would make sense to me that the way that they read the passages and the way that they read the Torah and the lens that they look at through it uh, is a way that they're trying to restore that garden. In fact, the word pardes is where we actually get the English word paradise from. But the concept is actually a Hebrew acronym. And each of these letters represents a very specific word. It's Peshat, Remez, Darash, and Sud. Peshat is what was on the surface. It can often be something literal, but it's not always literal. But the word itself means simple. It's the surface meaning or the simple meaning. It's the straight and the direct meaning. Now, obviously, there's a first literal man. Adam was a literal man. He had a literal wife. Obviously, that's how, that's how humans procreate. That's how, we, that's, how we, that's how the world works. But they disobeyed God, and they set in motion a series of unfortunate events that led to death and a world that is now under the power of sin. The Hebrew book, uh, the Mishnah, is a commentary that works primarily in this territory. Uh, it's an exposition of what's actually said and often what's actually going on. Like, that's what that would do. Now, a remez is a hint or an illusion. We have a bigger problem with this. Because again, uh, fiction, nonfiction, that wasn't a thing until about the 1300s. So a remez is something that was added to slightly push someone a little gent more gently in the right direction. The sages and the rabbis rarely gave the answers. Uh, so a remez was something that they would give to make sure that um, you can come to the answer on your own, but you had to do a little bit of work to find that answer. Now, so a concept could be entirely true, like the point, um, like the point of a parable, right? Like, uh, just for instance, the, um, in, in a parable, the story uh, is used to make a point, but the story that's used to make the point didn't necessarily actually always happen. For example, Jesus pulled from all sorts of imagery that already really existed when he gave us the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a very popular story. There's a real road. There's a real feud of people between the Jews and the Samaritans. That's all real, a real rivalry of people groups. But he was not necessarily telling us a historical story. He was telling a parable to make a point 
that the, and the point was more meaningful than actually what than it actually would have been just had that story existed. And I'll show you why. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a story that has now since inspired many real-life Good Samaritan stories. Idea, because this, this idea just sort of stuck. So this story that Jesus told simply to make a point to a lawyer who was trying to justify himself and figure out how he can be saved... Jesus now actually shows a way that we're supposed to live, a new way to be human, a way in which we can look out for our neighbor and take care of them and then love them more than ourselves or as much as ourselves, which as far as I'm concerned, that's the bigger point. How many stories have that kind of power? How many stories do you hear that after you hear it, it now changes so that you go do the exact same thing that's in that story? That's the power of parables, and that's why he was such a good storyteller. But whether it really happened or not... It, what it would lead to happening all over the world is where that power lies. So now anytime somebody encounters a Jesus follower and that person's beat up on the side of the road, a Jesus follower knows exactly what to do in that situation. So there's the literal, and then there's the true. And there are plenty of things that Jesus said that weren't literal, but there's nothing that Jesus said that was not true. Everything is True. So a remez is a concept um, that, that's it's a bit of a hint. It's, a direct, it's go, helping us in the right direction. But we struggle with that because we want to believe that everything that is being told to us is exactly as it is. But Jesus often used these hints and these allusions in his teachings. In, in Matthew 13, you have Jesus' disciples coming up there and say, Jesus, why are you talking to us like this? Why are you talking in parables? Why don't you just tell us what's actually going on? Tell it to us straight. Explain it to us. Can't you just tell us the answer? But Jesus was a rabbi. He worked in the same zone of the rabbis and the sages. And that's how they did it. That's how they taught. That's how they wrote. So a remez can be an allegory or it can be an illusion or it can be a little hint dropped into a story that leads you to finding the bigger meaning of the story. Now drash is the moral or imperative meaning. Now this is something we do a lot around here as people who value conversation. Uh, we talked a couple of months ago about midrash. Uh, and it's a very similar word, and it's a very similar concept. Uh, it's, it, the meaning, um, what it's doing is it's the meaning that's in the context um, that's not, so, so something happens, you say, okay, this is the meaning, but this is the context of how this actually applies to my life. There's something, this is what it's saying, this is what it means for me. This word actually comes from the process of threshing grain. Separating the kernel from the chaff, which is which what that is, is when you thresh grain, you're, it's the process of loosening what's edible, uh, the edible parts of the grain, and getting it off the husk and the straw, uh, the part that you can't eat. Which, to me, that makes incredible sense as why something like this would be illustrated that way. Because what Jerash is, is it's, is it's pulling the parts off that you can apply to your life right now. So you're taking the part that's, hey, this part, you need, you need both parts to grow, right? You need all of it to grow, you, for, but at some point, you have to figure out, hey, what can I take off of this so that I can actually consume it and be a better person? And actually put this, uh, apply this and have it a- actually tangibly take shape in my life and in my relationships and in my role in the body of Christ. Uh, and how we're supposed to be kind of on this earth, right? And the mission that we've been given. So when I read Genesis 3, and I read the account of the fall, I compare the story of Adam and Eve, and I realize that's the story of Don and I. That's the story of my parents. It's the story of my grandparents. It's the story of all of us. It's the community of people and how we've all fallen as a humanity and how we don't treat each other right all the time and how as a humanity we're broken people with no real hope on our own. And it's that understanding that actually leads me to a place where I'm like, I'm desperate for Jesus. Without Jesus, I have no hope. 
So the fourth lens that they would look through is called sued. Now, sued was the hidden or the secret meaning or the mystical meaning. Now, this is, this is the way they would view it. And it's, it's making sure that you're always asking the question, okay, what's going on underneath the part that we see? Like, what's this trying to tell us without actually telling us? And that is the way that they would read the Torah. They would read the Torah with all four of those in mind. Uh, that's how they would read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and obviously future writings as well, but it was specifically always applied when reading the Torah. So with that, let's look again a little bit at Genesis. See, Genesis, first of all, was obviously written uh, by Hebrews. Most people say it was written by Moses. Uh, some people think it wasn't written until later during the exile period. But either way, it's a compilation of stories that have been passed down from generation to generation to generation. So let's assume Moses wrote it. It wasn't like Moses watched it happen as he wrote it. What he, he, what he did is he compiled stories and he, and he told them these stories that have been passed down forever. He told them in a way that his people would now understand thousands of years later to understand what actually took place. So in Hebrew, the writer called this first man Adam. I was talking to Jimmy about this last week. Jimmy grew up in a Jewish family. Uh, and yeah, so it's always insightful to talk to him about this stuff. And, and he reminded me, he's like, hey, uh, of course, the Hebrew language didn't exist when Genesis, uh, when, when Genesis happened. When it was written, it, it existed. But when it happened, it didn't exist. So when the language was formed and this was written, this first person whom the story rests on, he's now assigned a Hebrew name for a Hebrew audience. And that name is Adam, Adam. But the names themselves are actually incredibly significant. Just look at the names of the characters we talked about last week. We talked about Adam. We talked about Eve. We talked about Cain. We talked about Abel. And we talked about the serpent right? Adam means humanity, and Eve means life. The Bible actually tells us that Adam gave Eve the name Eve because she's the mother of everything that's alive. She's the mother of all the living. Now, even, even though our English translations don't identify the man in the story by the name of Adam until Genesis 2.20, watch how much Adam is used. So even in this passage, 2.19, whenever the man, it's the same word, Adam. Um, the man, Adam, gave names. But in 2.20, you get, but for Adam, Adam, now he's actually named, there was not found a helper, or there, there was not a found a helper fit for him. Even before that, the first time you get it is in this verse. Let us make Adam in our image and after our likeness. Let us make man, let us make humanity, people, not just one person, but all people, in our image. John Walton talks about this in his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, and uh, how Adam is a historical man, and he acknowledges he's a historical man. We acknowledge he's a historical man, but Adam is not actually his, what, it would be impossible that it would be his literal historical name because Hebrew wasn't written yet. It didn't exist yet. Adam was the Hebrew name assigned to the man in the garden who also represents all of us. I love the way that he explains this. He says this, uh, he said, if we read that someone's name is human, that's his name, his name is human, and his partner's name is life, we quickly develop an impression of what is being communicated. These characters, by virtue of their assigned names, are larger than the historical characters to whom they refer. They represent something beyond themselves. Consequently, we can see from the start that the interpretation may not be straightforward. More is going on than giving some biographical information about two people in history. 
For instance, we studied last week about how this couple ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, the compelling argument, the, the, the thing that they, re- the thing that they uh, responded so poorly to was the opportunity to be like God. Like that's what compelled them. The serpent comes in and he says, hey, you can be like God. That's, a, that's an argument. God, oh, he's like, God, you know, the serpent's like, hey, God just is jealous. He has, a, he has like an insecurity issue. Because we know that God always was the one who navigated good and evil. But by eating that fruit, what they were telling God was, God, I want to figure this out on my own. I don't need you to figure it out for me. I want to be my own God. Now that's very, very significant that they said that. But what did that lead to? It led to death. It, led, it opened up for all of humanity a world of sin and a world of death. Now, because of that, life has a starting point and life has an ending point. It didn't, it didn't have a starting point and an ending point before they ate that fruit. They didn't have to navigate good and evil before they had that fruit, but now there is. The New Testament writer James says it like this. He says, life is a vapor. It is here today and it's gone tomorrow. See, we want to think that we're going to live forever and we want to think that our, our lives are going to be the most significant thing to ever happen to human history. But James tells us that in reality, a thousand years from now, if we're remembered at all, it's going to be a speck on the timeline of history. It's going to be a vapor. It's it's here today. It's gone tomorrow. But watch this. Adam and Eve had two children. Again, we talked about this last week, Cain and Abel. The first murder in human history is Cain murdered Abel. Adam and Eve rebelled, leading death into the world, and their son was the first to experience death. But do you know what the name Abel means? The name Abel means vapor. It's the first example that life truly is here today and gone tomorrow. And finally, the serpent. Someone came up to me with a very, a very hard question last week at church. Again, I love hard questions. I don't always have the answers. I didn't really have the answer to this one, and I still don't. But the question did lead me to go a little bit further there, and I love that. I love it when questions lead me to, the, the, to go a little further. The question is, why in the world would God put that serpent there in the first place? Why would he do it? Why would he put the serpent who set in motion the death of everyone, why would he even be there? Who, who made, why, why would God even create something who could make it so now we live in a world that we have to navigate good and evil on our own? Why do that? But when you really think about that and the layers of unpacking that, what that leads to is questions of why is there evil? And why does God allow evil at all? And why is there suffering? And why, why do we have any of these things at all in our world? Now, I love that the question is being asked, even though it's not one that I can answer. Um, I mean, we can talk about suffering. We can talk about pain. We can talk about what to do with that pain. We can talk about what to do about evil. But I can't tell you why it exists, at least not with confidence during this message. But I will tell you this about that story and about that serpent. The serpent is completely consistent with every pattern that we see throughout the Bible. And this story is definitely at least trying to give us a hint or a remez of what's, is, what's actually going on there, of a pattern of what we're going to have to overcome in our lives. The ancient reader would have uh, viewed the serpent as something called a chaos creature. Something that brings disorder to an orderly situation. So the serpent is the very first image that we get in the Bible of evil, but it's not the very first image we get in the Bible of chaos. The first chapter of Genesis tells us that the universe was chaos, 
And out of chaos, God created something orderly. So God brought order out of chaos when he created the world. Then he creates man in his own image and with his glory, and he gives man the job of ruling over the world and spreading his glory. Then along comes this serpent. Now the serpent later, New Testament writers identify him as the devil himself. And, and so, but, but at this point, they don't know that. But what, the, what does he do? He tries to pull, pull this ordered world back into chaos. And how does he do it? He does it by trying to convince Adam and Eve they can be their own God. He says, you don't need God to determine right and wrong for you. You can do that yourself. God just knows that if you eat it, you're going to be like him in knowing good and evil. But if you were to even go back uh, and read the account of Satan and how Satan fell from grace and how Satan fell from heaven, his conversion to the dark side, if you will, it's actually the exact same story. Satan wants to be God, and so he loses everything. Adam and Eve want to be God. They want to navigate it on their own. They don't need God, and then they lose everything. Genesis 3.1 begins by saying this. It says, Genesis 3 begins by saying, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord has made. And and this really stuck out to me because I really think we need to just be, we need to be aware. We need to be diligent. That's what what Peter says. Because because he, he prowls around and he looks for who he can destroy. But another way you could say this word crafty is the word subtle. The serpent is more subtle than everyone else who ever lived. He works in this subtle place where he convinces you to start to believe, I can be my own God in this area. Maybe just not over this one. Like, I got to make sure God has control here, but maybe not my finances. I could probably do what I need to do with my finances, but I'll give God church world. I'll give God my job, whatever it looks like. You, you kind of start to create spaces in which God's in this box, but not this one, right? So for Abraham, right? We talked about Abraham a few times this series. For Abraham, it was, hey, God's going to make you the father of many nations, and he can really do that. He just needs your help because Sarah's barren. So you need to go sleep with Hagar, and, that, and then through there you'll have a son, right? What it is is it's chaos brought into a situation that God was trying to work a miracle in. God had already brought order out of the chaos of Sarah's womb who did not, was unable to have children. He was already doing that, and yet the, the lie is, let's bring chaos back into that. We have to do it our own way. God needs our help. We need to actually be the ones who make it happen. We need to be our own God. And of course, God, the God of all grace, what, like he is, he still just sorts it all out and brings out, he gets rid of the chaos again. He sorts through the chaos, brings it back to order. He sorts through the mess that was made. He still does what he says that he'll do because that's what God does, is he always does what he says that he'll do. He still gives Abraham a son through Sarah. But the point is, is if you give in to this, even a little, before long it will hook you. And before long, you'll find that you've lost a whole lot more than you had intended on. I love the way that um, the Bible Project, it, they did this in this video about Satan. And they talk about how Satan's name means the adversary. It's he's against, the one who's against you. And I love the way they say it. He says, he, they say, he's not for anything, but he's against everything. All he is is against you. But the, the subtle lie is that he is for you. The lie is that you'll be better off if you have that thing. If you, if, you, if, you, if you live that way, if you control that area of your life, but you're like a lamb to the slaughter if you're following it. But notice this. 
This is very important, and this really stuck out to me last night as I was studying this. As bad as this serpent is, as bad as the devil is, as real as evil is, back in Romans, Paul does not blame the serpent. Paul blames Adam. Because Adam was given the glory of God. He was created in the image of God, and he was given the first clear mandate from God. And he didn't do it. And because of that, in Romans 5, when we read that the trespass of the first Adam initiated a world in which death and sin now reign, right? That, that's, that's what we get. So he said, because, because Adam did that, now this reigns. But this is very important. We talked a few times throughout this, how Paul uses sin in two different ways throughout the book of Romans. Um, there's a way that most of us think of sin, as in sin is the, the bad things that we do. Sin as a verb. It's an action that's done by an individual. But there's also a second way that he uses the word sin. Uh, and I've, I've heard it said this way. It's like sin with a capital S. It's sin as like an embodiment. It's almost as if it were alive itself. It's a power, and this is how he describes it in Romans, especially chapter 3. It's a power that exists and reigns in the world. It's a power that enslaves us. It's something that seeks to create chaos in orderly places. It's sin more as a noun, which I tend co- to connect more so to Adam, not as just a guy who ate a piece of fruit, even though he did. Because to me, I'm like, okay, Adam eats a piece of fruit. What does that mean for me? But I like to connect more to Adam as humanity and what he represents as humanity because as a whole, how as a whole this has allowed chaos to now reign in the places that are supposed to be life. And where there's supposed to be order, we now have chaos. See, if, if to us, if everything is just reduced down to simply being about you did the right thing, you did the wrong thing, I do the wrong thing, I do the right thing, then really I think we miss it. See, especially in the Old Testament, it was always about the whole, which, is what, which I really had to come to terms with this as I was studying this. It was always about the whole. It was always about the corporate. It was always about what were the things that would make this entire community flourish or entire community fall? What are the things that will make everybody thrive? What are the things that would make it everybody die? What are the power structures and the systems that we've collectively given way to? What's running our world? What are we letting run our world? See, the ancient world was not individualistic at all. It was a communal world. It was a community. And if something happened to one person, it had an effect on everybody. One of the examples of the story is Joshua 7. It's the story of Achan. Achan steals a cloak and he steals some silver while they're attacking Jericho. And this is what God has to say to Joshua about Achan. He says, Israel has sinned. He doesn't say Achan has sinned. He says, Israel has sinned. And it says, now because of that, Israel cannot face their enemies. You are completely debilitated and you are completely powerless. Anytime you go to battle, you will lose. They are all guilty, even though individually, only one of them was guilty. Paul undoubtedly is saying that mankind collectively is paying for what Adam did in the world. And for what Adam brought into our world. Sin with a capital S. It's sin as in, it's it's. So in in the same way that there's an individual Adam, and there's also an image of humanity. And that image, in in that image, there's this kind of off-balanced world that we all contribute to one way or another. 
And it wouldn't exist this way if we weren't the ones that were trying to navigate good and evil, if we weren't the ones that always had to figure out, that's right, that's wrong, that's right, that's wrong. That's what Adam gave to us. We can't stand against our enemies as long as that exists. Just like Achan, as long as this is there, as long as he did what he did, you can't stand against your enemies. Uh, there's a phrase that we'll, we'll talk about uh, in the next time, it's in, in, in chapter 6 that Paul uses. It's kind of a strange phrase, but he says, he, calls, he says a body of sin. He says there's something called a body of sin. And we're, again, we'll get into this more, but the idea is, and this is what he says, he says that Christ was crucified so that the body of sin could be reduced to nothing. And I don't want to get too ahead, but this is very huge. Because any, um, any image that we get of sin as a force or sin as an entity, or something that has an active power in our world, because we get a lot of those images in Romans, anytime you get an image like that, the cross of Jesus Christ has reduced it to nothing. Any power that you can attribute to whatever happened when Adam fell, whatever distorted world we inherited, Jesus Christ died to put it back, to, to put us back to who we were created to be, to put us back into the garden. So any power you can attribute to that, Jesus kind of, he nullified that. So whatever image-bearing ability that became distorted, Jesus died to restore. In Romans 5, um, 18 and 19, Paul finally gets to his comparison of Adam and Christ. And he says this, he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Don and I went to a wedding yesterday for this guy that I grew up with. Um, I, it was a long day yesterday because we had blessed fest and we had uh, side lot work and, and then we got home and then we drive to Lansing for a wedding and then we came back, it was just a long day. But um, there was like four of us who kind of grew up on this cul-de-sac uh, in Lansing. We all grew up together uh, and we had a lot of fun growing up. I mean, when, when we were real little, like before I was like a teenager or in early teenage years. Anyway, the best man in the wedding got up and he, he started telling all of these stories about a bunch of just awful things that we had done um, and he listed them, some, a couple of things the groom had done, some things that I did, but he, and, uh, different people in the group, and he never said who did each one. He just sort of listed all of it together as a whole, like all of us did these things, even though he, he said and somebody did this and somebody did this, but he never identified who did it. He never said who did what. And as he's going through these lists, I'm realizing that most of the things he was listing, it was me that did that thing. I'm like, and, I, and like, I didn't even realize how like screwed up of a person I was until he's listing this list of things. But he's doing it. In this, so it's weird because it's somebody else's wedding and that guy had only done like a couple of things on the list and I had done almost all of them. Like afterwards we gather, I'm like, was that me? That was you. Was that, yeah, that was you. That was, I mean, I was there. I'm like, what? What the heck? It wasn't even my wedding. But it reminded me of a couple of things. First of all, man, I did some really mean-spirited things when I was a kid. But it was fascinating to me because in the speech that was given, all of us were lumped into this one list, this entire list. And everyone beside us had no clue which of us did which thing. So in their minds, because of the way that this story was told, all of us did all of them. And, and I thought about that. 
And I thought about how I'm actually the one who's guilty about for most of this. And knowing in all actuality, um, I did most of them, but I didn't do all of them. See, to me, when I think about this passage, and this is where I'm going with that, I, I understand the fact that if it weren't for Jesus, I'd have to pay for those things. I'd have to pay for all those things. Like, that makes sense to me. You do something stupid, you were held accountable for that. But I, for the longest time, had all sorts of problems that I took with this section in Romans. I've talked to so many people about it. I've tried to sort it out. I've called my pastors. I've, I've struggled with this part. Because I despise the concept that I'm guilty for something that somebody else did. Or that I have to pay the price for what someone else did. Like, it doesn't matter how much I do on my end. No matter how hard I work to do the right thing, it'll never be enough. Because someone else did the wrong thing. And now this sin just seems to have reign over all of us. Like that's always been very hard for me to reconcile, just to be honest. Even with understanding, I would have done the same thing because I would have. If I'd have been, I told you that last week. If I'm in the garden, I'm eating the fruit. That's what I would have done. I, I've screwed up enough in my life that I know that. I mean, I, when I was at the wedding. I heard all the things. I know what I've done. I know that I'm guilty. But it's always bothered me. Until I realized that Paul's point is actually a lot bigger than just saying, I'm guilty because Adam's guilty. That's how we read this. We read this, I'm guilty because Adam's guilty. But his point is actually a lot different than that, as true as that may be. His point is that we give all this power to Adam when Adam has no power over Christ. We give Adam all this power, letting something he did define us. We think, oh, we're sinners. Oh, we're broken. Oh, this world is lost. Thanks a lot, Adam. That's awesome that you did that. Now, now we're all separated from God. Now because of you, God's here and we're here. And where all those things are true without Christ, those things are lies in Christ. If you're in Christ and you believe those things, it's not true. It's a lie. They're subtle lies. But remember, the serpent was more subtle than any other creature in that garden. And if a chaos creature, think about this, if a chaos creature can convince a Christian that they're still under the power of Adam, even after the cross has set them free, then we're never going to be the people that we're supposed to be in this world. Because we're going to always keep going back to that tree. We're going to always keep going back to who we used to be. We're going to go back to the forbidden fruit because that's what our fathers did. That's what Adam did. That's, what, that's how it works. But for the Christian, for the person who's been justified, for the person who's actually been declared to be righteous, the sin of Adam does not rest on us. The blood of Christ washes over us. And God declares us to be righteous because when he looks at us, he does not see Adam. He sees Jesus. You know, it's easy to be so hard on yourself when all you see is Adam. It's easy to see a world that has no hope. It's easy to see a life that has no future. But imagine how you would view yourself if all you saw was Jesus. Imagine how you would treat your spouse if all you saw was Jesus. Imagine how much better you would love your neighbor if all you saw was Jesus, we need to stop giving Adam so much power. One trespass led to the condemnation for everyone, but one act of righteousness nullified it. And now in Christ, you're justified. You know, Psalm 8, 
is a, um, it's a very important psalm. And band, you can come back up. But Psalm 8 is a very important psalm that Paul draws from very often, particularly when it has to do with the glory of God. Kind of the big point of Romans is how do we reinitiate the glory of God and be who we're supposed to be in the world? And underneath the layers of what he's writing throughout Romans is this, this clear message in his mind, and Psalm 8 is definitely there. But what's so fascinating about Psalm 8 is it begins by establishing that God deserves all glory. It's kavod, right? He deserves all kavod. But then as it progresses, progresses, he begins to talk about man. And he begins to talk about, how it says how man has actually been crowned with glory. And man has been crowned with honor. And man has been given dominion over all things. And it's really this retelling of the garden story, but it happened after the garden. It's told after the fall. And so it's written from this perspective it's of someone who, as they're writing, they're writing this knowing that they're a sinner. They're writing from this perspective of somebody who they know that they're fallen. They know that they're flawed. They already knew that they're never going to live up to that glory that is God. And yet the writer acknowledges, even after Adam fell, that the plan for the world is still men and women who can embody the glory of God and be the hope of the world. Men and women who actually do the things that God commanded us to do. Uh, the, the, the plan for the world is still all of us coming together and doing the work that we're supposed to do in the garden. Who will bring heaven to earth now. Who will work the earth and will create out of this earth the world that God has given us. You know, this conclusion that Paul gives us here, it would have been revolutionary for their day. He tells Jews... <clears throat> If you want to get back to the garden, if you want that original intent, that original design, you have to realize you can't do it on your own. Because Adam is in you. And until you get Jesus in you, you're going to always see good and evil in yourself, and you're going to always see good and evil in other people, because that's exactly what Adam brought into this world. And it will debilitate you from reaching other people. You can study the Torah, you can memorize the Bible. It's good, but Adam is still in you. You're never going to study it enough to get to God. You're never going to study enough to get Adam out of you. Pardes, right? Studying, learning, viewing the Bible through every possible lens so that you can figure out how do we bring back the garden? How do we restore the world? How do we bring the Messiah? If you read it and you miss Jesus, then you missed it. And you will never get there on your own. That is the entire point of what Paul's saying here. But here's the thing. We do have Jesus, we do have access to Jesus, and we do not have to live bound by the, other, the old way of life anymore. And anyone who is in Christ, they are a new creation. That is the entire point. The point of Paul's argument is we don't have to live our lives under the power of sin just because such a power exists in our world today. Is it there? Yes. Does it exist? Yes, it exists. Does it control you? It doesn't have to. Jesus Christ today can make you into a person who... Just as the psalmist says, and just as God originally commissioned man to be, you can be an image bearer of the Almighty God through spreading his glory to the earth. Ephesians 2, 424 says, put on the new self. Put on the new self created in the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. Put on the person who Jesus died for you to be. Romans 5.1, we, we did a message on this a little bit ago. We talked about peace. He says, because you've been justified. This is very important. 
Because you've been justified, you've been declared righteous, and because God has declared you righteous, now you can have peace on this earth. You can actually have peace in the world right now through Jesus. Well, peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And the word picture for shalom, it's four images. It's fascinating. It's, the, it's how ancient Hebrew was written. It was written in this picture language. And uh, this, the first is a picture of teeth. And teeth would, picture, would, it would symbolize to consume or to destroy something. And so that's the teeth. And then the second one was the, the shepherd's staff. It was lamed. It represented authority. Then the third letter is the letter vav. And vav is a nail or a hook. It's what you connect something to. You want to put a picture on the wall. You connect it with a nail. You establish it with a nail. And then the last letter is mem, and mem means chaos. Mem, uh, it's, it's a picture almost of a wave crashing. Anybody who's ever been through a hurricane knows waves can cause a lot of chaos. Twice in Genesis, the, word is just, the letters used, mem, means chaos. So teeth, to consume or destroy. Staff, the authority. Nail, how you establish. And wave, the chaos. So the picture of shalom, the picture of peace that you get, is that if you want peace, if you want shalom, you must destroy the authority that is establishing chaos. And you do that by putting on the new self. But you do it you, by not denying that there's chaos, not denying that there's a chaos creature that's hell-bent on destroying your life and destroying our world. But you know what? Romans 16 actually tells us that the God of peace will soon crush that chaos creature. The God of Shalom will soon crush Satan. And the cross of Jesus Christ has already reduced the body of sin down to nothing. But something can be true, yet you don't let it be real in your life. The cross is true. It is. And it's more powerful than any chaos. But you still have to choose to cling to that cross rather than feed the chaos. So what are the areas of your life that are establishing chaos. What are they? What are the areas of our lives that we've given authority to the first Adam? What are the things that we just keep going back to? Believing that it's just our nature to go back to those things because we haven't actually put on that new self yet. That new self in which Christ actually reigns. What is the authority establishing chaos in the areas of your life that you know God wants to bring peace into? What are they? You know, we, we need to take the time in our lives to ask questions like, which atom is driving our lives? Which atom is more powerful? Is it, is it the first atom? The one who wanted to be his own God? The one who exchanged glory for knowledge? The one who, uh, uh, who had life and he traded it for death? Or is it Jesus? There should not be a question in your mind as to which Adam is more powerful. Romans 5.19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many are now made righteous. See, see that, that's what we need to realize, is there is a new Adam. And in the cosmic battle between good and evil, the new Adam wins. He wins.